This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, Samir Singh from AppNE and I discuss the top five events which rocked the Asia landscape in 2016. We also examine other side events that have happened and its implications to 2017. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. And it's almost the end of the year for us again. So how have things been with you? They've been great. Uh, 2016 has been an interesting year for geopolitics, but personally, it's been a good year for me. And of course, I'm talking to Samir Singh, Industry Analyst Director for App Annie. And of course, we are here to talk about the big five events of the year. There will be one episode and then followed by the five predictions next year, which will start exactly 2017. So the episode will go into 2017, but we record the year before. So we're like, oh, the so we'll be talking as if we start the year in the next episode. Yeah, hopefully we don't miss anything too big in the next five days. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. So... The five events that rocked 2016 in Asia. I think you and I have gone through a list and I know some of the topics that we talk about may not be very familiar to some of the audience, but I think one of the big five events that actually happening was actually SoftBank acquiring ARM. And the reason is that SoftBank is one of the biggest Japanese telecommunications who have stakes in Sprint in the US and they are also an investor of Alibaba. In fact, their ownership in Alibaba has actually been diluted, but it's a very significant on their annual report. So having that acquisition was one of the probably the big events of the year. And also it has some implications to how Internet of Things go. So what do you think about that then? Well, on a, the valuation itself is pretty high, about 20 times revenue, but it's pretty much the safest acquisition you can make. Their position, they don't have a huge revenue model because they're basically a licensing company. They license their IP out to Qualcomm and pretty much everyone else. And they're insulated from pretty much every price war that's happening in, in the hardware space in mobile or anywhere. Because they're basically the arms dealer. Everyone basically uses their design. Qualcomm uses it. Small company like Rockchip would use it. Even NVIDIA is using them for the gaming space. Things like the NVIDIA Shield tablet. So in that sense, the upside here is going into the internet of things. Now, I don't think IoT is necessarily going to be going to see huge consumer adoption. Because in a lot of ways, it depends on the entire ecosystem being built up. So you need to have, let's say, a connected fridge. Uh, you need to be able to control your curtains, your lighting with, let's say, your smartphone or a home-connected device. And the replacement rate for those items just isn't very high. You might do it twice while you while you own your house. So let's say if a replacement cycle is half the length of the ownership of a standard house, that means the consumer adoption cycle for IoT is going to be quite long. But that still means that there is going to be a phase of innovation within the industry with lots of different companies trying to set up new solutions and which means ARM is still going to make a decent amount of money. And I thought it was interesting the acquisition price was about US 32 billion and one of the most interesting parts of this acquisition is that why didn't Intel do it where they have the chance? (laughs) That is a good question. I don't know the answer to it. Intel's been married to their x86 design for the longest time because let's look at it this way right. So Intel designs makes and sells their own chips. So they make a lot more money from a single design than ARM does. But ARM's margins and growth are much safer than Intel's are because Intel's active in industries that just aren't doing very well right now. Even if Intel acquired ARM, from a financial perspective, how much of an impact would it have? 
you know, sometimes I wonder if it's the Brexit that actually triggered SoftBank making this acquisition because prices are suddenly went low for most of the British companies. In fact, there were a lot of British companies that got acquired this year. That's a good point. The currency value did have an impact on valuation, but I mean, in this case, it's a good investment in any case, right? I mean, granted, it may, it may, may have been a better investment and the timing would have been perfect, but my guess is SoftBank was looking at, for, at it for a while. And SoftBank is not just influential in just making this big gambit with ARM. I mean, they are into everything out there. They have done a lot of investments in India. They have done it for China previously, and they have also gone into Southeast Asia, even in the US market. But we will come back to that topic a little bit more later. I want to go to the second big event of the year, Pokemon Go. Do you think that's a big event? <laughs> I would be fired if I said I, I didn't. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Pokemon Go, was, it was probably the biggest thing that happened to the app economy, if not in 2016, if not just 2016, the entire I mean, life cycle of the app economy. We've never seen something this big and this sudden, which basically very, very few or people or maybe no one saw coming. So just the impact of it was huge. I mean, it's hard to describe. You know what I love about the Pokemon Go story? The backstory is really interesting. When John Hankey, the CEO of Niantic Labs, went to Japan to pitch the story to the Pokemon guys, and the guy who owns the Pokemon franchise was actually an 11th level player for Ingress. So that was what was impressive. He understand exactly what to do. And this is like the first time I actually see someone said, you have the solution to my problem and I'm going to adopt it and create such a sensation. And you can imagine after looking at this proof of concept, if Pokemon Go was really a massive proof of concept, pretty much every IP owner in the world is going to be breaking down Niantic's doors to say, can you do something with my IP as well? And there's a whole list of things about Pokemon Go that I find completely fascinating. Right? So one obviously was the business model. I mean, I've spoken to you about this before that they really can't be copied because they've got that base of 5 million or multiple million data points that they've received, submissions that they've received from Ingress players over multiple years. They've got their data stack built out on Google Places and Google Maps API. And of course, they benefited because as a company, they were founded within Google. But after creating all of that, they're pretty much a monopoly for the location gaming platform, which means any IP owner only has to talk to them and they can dictate them. Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, at some point, all of this is going to happen and it's going to happen only under here. And the second part is the how user behavior really changed when Pokemon Go came out. So one of the things you normally see is when a successful game comes out, it has an impact on the success of other popular games, right? For example, if Clash Royale came out, it would have some impact on revenues from other games. The, the overall industry revenues are growing at, let's say, X percent. And if Clash Royale all of a sudden exploded, it would have an impact on other, other games. Pokemon Go basically had no impact on anyone. In terms of revenue, time spent, whatever, we actually charted this out in our predictions report at Appani. And time spent in games was basically, in all of the games was basically flat and Pokemon Go just became a massive layer on top. Which means people started playing Pokemon Go normally when they don't use smartphones, when they're out running errands, when they're out on their commute. That basically means that augmented reality as a concept is an opportunity for pretty much any brand to create new engagement channels with their customers. What is interesting about this, at the beginning of the year, Nintendo's revenues were actually doing better. They were actually making profit with Splatoon. The second thing is that they are launching the Super Mario run today. And they have been doing the right things, but it's actually Pokemon Go that literally pushes their market cap by double 
within a week. And that was interesting. But of course, it went back down. But how effective was this investment for them to give them a new sign of life? And I think now people are talking about Nintendo almost in the same light as Disney again, which was impressive. Let me put it this way. I'm a little concerned that Pokemon Go has put unrealistic expectations on Nintendo as a company. Now, Pokemon Go was good for Nintendo because, I mean, they didn't make a whole lot of money from it directly. They made about 115 million in revenue because they own about 32% of uh, the Pokemon company, which was getting the licensing fee from that deal, right? But there wasn't that much of a direct benefit. Uh, Most of this basically went to Niantic. Of course, Niantic was the company that was involved in creating the whole game. The Pokemon company was a great partner and saying yes to a deal like that shows some foresight which is good but nintendo on their part when super mario run comes out i'm not hugely bullish on the prospects of that game so here's why yes mario is a huge ip but this game is has about three levels free and after that there's a ten dollar fee to unlock the rest of the game that revenue model has never worked at scale on mobile of course i expect super mario run to be the most popular paid game on mobile but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come anywhere near pokemon go in terms of success. I'm really somewhat concerned that sell-side analysts, their estimates are all over the place right now. So what would you think about Nintendo then? I mean, would you think that Nintendo's future is going to be more utilizing their gaming content IP to build more games for mobile? Or do you think that is their stake in Pokemon one of their saving graces just as Yahoo has with Alibaba? I definitely think that's a saving race. Again, that, that's because it's not necessarily the Pokemon company doing something big. It's because they signed a, a great partnership with Niantic. Now, there is a good impact of the Halo effect generated by a mobile game. So Pokemon after Pokemon Go launched, the Pokemon company launched a new game, Pokemon Sun and Moon, which had like the best all-time sales of any Pokemon game. Of course, Pokemon Go had a huge Im- impact on the sales of that game. So it's possible if Super Mario Run has great downloads, that would have an impact on driving sales of Mario games on console. But I don't think Super Mario Run is necessarily going to be a huge financial success for Nintendo. What that says of Nintendo as a long-term company, it's still too early to say because they do have other IP. There's things like Animal Crossing, Fire Emblem. I don't know exactly how they're going to implement it. I hope they don't go, go down the console pricing route, which they seem to have done with Super Mario Run. If they design something that is mobile first, both from an experience and a revenue model perspective, they have a shot. They've got great IP, I'm going to say that. But if they don't, then maybe their future is as an IP licensing company. Okay, which comes to the third event, which is the Uber and Didi in China. Of course, Didi acquired Uber China. That is the deal that no one saw it coming, but it happened. And now Didi basically claims to the victory or i mean depending on who looked at it so who do you think are the winner and the loser of this deal honestly i think they're both winners <laughs> i mean they were burning up capital at a rate i have never seen i don't think anyone's ever seen anyone burn capital at that rate on subsidies on that price war it was destroying both companies and this is a win-win so the moment the deal went through there were reports that uber raised prices in china and i think dd did the the same you need to have a sustainable business model you need to have sustainable unit economics if you're going to ipo anytime soon that doesn't necessarily mean that either of these companies are going to ipo anytime soon maybe i think dd has a better shot to ipo over the next year than Uber does because Uber is still competing with a host of different companies in other regions where DD is largely focused on China. But broadly, there are no losers in this. And to add on, one of my guests, Kaiser Kuo, made this point. Yes, Uber burned $2 billion in China, but because they sold it to DD, they get back $7 billion in basically market cap, which if they 
did it ever goes public, they basically make the money back yeah. at three times, which is not a bad deal after all, right? <laughs> That's a good deal. Yeah. I mean, kudos to Travis Kalanick and Chen Wei from Didi who actually basically sit down and have a drink and get their deputies to hash out this deal. But I mean, there's a lot of impact towards India and Southeast Asia, but we're going to keep that for a later conversation. The next probably big event I thought was interesting, but it came in phases is the India Unicorn Startups Apocalypse. Uh, now we are having everybody telling Flipkart and Snapdeal to please merge together and Amazon India is eating their lunch. What are your thoughts? We've been talking about this for what? more than a year now, right? I mean, it was bound to happen. At some point, the unit economics are going to come back and bite you. A VC is not going to continually sustain your business, right? At some point, you need to become self-sustaining. And Flipkart and Snapdeal, they both built up their businesses on discounting, spending loads and loads of money. At some point, that was going to come back and reality was going to hit, right? And that happened when Amazon hit, hit the market because Amazon has their own capital. They can afford to wait out longer than Flipkart and Snapdeal can because they've got sustainable businesses in other parts of the world. Flipkart and Snapdeal don't. One of the challenges here is the valuations of Flipkart and Snapdeal, yes, they've declined, but they're still multiple billions of dollars. So any sort of acquisition merger will require a significant amount of investment. And it's unclear to me that it's going to be worth that money for the, their investors. Does that mean you wait, hold on until this company's valuation goes back down to a more reasonable area and then you sell out to a different company? Maybe. Maybe Alibaba looks at entering India in a different way if Flipkart's valuation goes back to, let's say, normal levels. They have an investment in Snapdeal though. Yeah, maybe they acquire them outright. At some, at some point. And also Flipkart's valuation is marked down to $8 billion now in US dollars by Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I mean, that's the fidelity of Morgan Stanley, right? Yeah, I mean, those markdowns, I'm not sure if those markdowns are necessarily consistent with what every investor is doing. But yeah, it, it, the trend is clear. I mean, it was $15 billion at one point. Actually, the apocalypse also came to Southeast Asia pretty quickly. And it actually has some impact to the e-commerce war between Alibaba and Amazon of, uh, from India to Southeast Asia because Lazada at the beginning of 2016 was acquired by Alibaba. And in turn, just a couple of weeks ago, Lazada acquired Redmark, which is an online grocery so, and now we found out that Amazon is going to start running from Singapore, but actually they're going to go on into the region as a whole from Singapore. So this is going to be a pretty big happening for Alibaba and Amazon, setting it up for next year. So what do you think? Well, I think Southeast Asia had some advantages. Well, they're advantages in an interesting sense. They're smaller markets. So the valuations these companies had were smaller. I don't recall the acquisition price of Lazada, but was it around a billion? Yes, 1.5 billion. That's a much more reasonable valuation. I mean, yes, they had similar unit economics problems, probably not at the same scale as as uh, the Indian company, but it was, it was a small enough acquisition for Alibaba where even it's, if it's overvalued by a little bit, it doesn't matter. And that's something that Indian startups are really struggling with. In general, we've seen this across, all across Asia, right? So what happened was a lot of VCs got excited that basically the smartphone era was leading to a massive wave of growth in commerce. And it lead, led to a bunch of investments, Rocket Internet and a bunch of other investors basically went out and, and made those investments. They bit off more than they could chew. And now we're entering the consolidation phase a lot faster than we thought we would. We're going to see this in the West as well. In 2017, it's going to be at a smaller scale for delivery startups. But broadly, it's it's what we all expect. And I thought it was interesting that Alibaba acquired Lazada at US $1 billion. And of course, this is pretty a markdown price and just two days ago Rocket Internet sold Foodpanda which is also now gone so for 
Rocket, I think it also foreshadows the withering influence of Rocket Internet in Asia region as well. Yeah, I mean, Rocket's made a living of basically replicating e-commerce models in multiple countries. And that's exactly what they've done. Unfortunately for them, e-commerce was caught up in a wave of over-enthusiasm among the startup community, which they got caught up into as well. That's basically led to the situation. I mean, it's, it's happened across multiple regions. Asia was probably the biggest bubble, but not the only one. You've seen Just Eat acquire a couple of companies. Just today, I think they've acquired Delivery Heroes, UK business. They acquired a company in Canada as well. So there's delivery consolidation is going to happen all across the West as well. Again, to a smaller scale than we saw in these, but this was a worldwide phenomenon. Asia was just more affected than anywhere else. You're being very kind to Rocket Internet. For me, I think my prediction from the very start since 2011 is correct. They have basically set themselves up to fail with their thesis. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Let's just be clear. This entire commerce bubble was years in the making. It's not that it happened in one case. Rocket Internet was a huge part of that. So they, they deserve all the blame that, that they're getting. But it wasn't isolated to them. That's the only thing I'll say. This is interesting. These are the big five events. SoftBank acquiring ARM at US $32 billion, The Pokemon Go phenomenon. Uber and Didi in China. The Indian unicorn startups apocalypse. In fact, there are a lot of other India companies that actually died and the e-commerce war between Alibaba and Amazon from India to Southeast Asia. But there are some other interesting events that makes it to this big five. I think you and I actually worked out some of it on the site. So I'm going to start off with one of them, which is Tencent's investment in hype for India market. This is interesting because it shows you that WeChat couldn't successfully break into India. WhatsApp right now has a death grip on the Indian market. The dominance is incredible. I've seen it in the data as well. Hype for its part, the founders are very well connected. I'll give them that. So the CEO of, of Hike, I think is the son of uh, Bharti Mittal, who is the founder of India's largest telecom conglomerate. Right? So they're very well connected. They've got, they, they would have no problem getting investments. Obviously, that they could sign partnerships in order to get some more visibility. But the, um, the user base for Hike and the kind of engagement it gets is very, very small compared to WhatsApp. So what it's, it, it basically, it's become a secondary or tertiary messaging app for some people in India. And I don't know if that's a sustainable position to have long term. But would you think that Tencent would shares learnings with the Chinese market to help hike to scale in the India market then? I think they'll definitely try. The challenge is I'm not sure how much of Tencent's learnings in China are applicable in India. So if you look at Asian, I mean, we're going to discuss this later as well, the way Asian messaging apps behave and the way Western messaging apps behave. Asia, messaging apps basically become a portal for everyday services. In China, it really helped, for example, that Android app stores weren't really available. So the messaging app, when WeChat in particular, became a discovery mechanism as well. It's easier to discover services in one place as opposed to hunt multiple app stores for what you want. In India, weirdly behaves a lot more like the West. So if you look at the e-commerce landscape in India, Uber and Amazon have been immensely successful in India. They couldn't break it into China. And so, something similar has happened. So the issue here is one, the distribution model in India is very similar to the West. Google Play is the de facto distribution channel on Android. Of course, Android is the only thing that matters in India. On top of that, the way the user experience is designed in India is again much more consistent with the West. In China, people want multiple options. I'd say most of East Asia, people want multiple options on their user interface. They want to be able to get multiple things done. In the West and in India, there's a preference for a simpler user experience. People don't want too many things on their screen. And WhatsApp is a really good fit for that. And WeChat's learnings then don't really apply to Hike because even if Hike does, does that, it doesn't really, really take off. Because WeChat could have applied their own learnings while they launched in India as well. And they tried. 
right? But it didn't work. So what, what also tells me with hike is that it seems that whether you are in China, you're in India, or even in Southeast Asia, the skions of the old money, which is the, this young generation who are actually the sons and daughters of these millionaires, billionaires, are actually building the next billion dollar, or whether it's messaging apps, the Uber clones, etc. So maybe that's also another interesting observation that I think people do not realize there's a lot of old money that's actually ongoing in the Asia market as well. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what helped Hike take off in the first place. If without those connections and without that old money, I don't think Hike would exist in its current form. Of course, I mean, I'd still say that's a lot easier in China because if you have old money, you also have the fact that the country is largely self-sustaining and foreign companies have had trouble breaking into it. In India doesn't have that issue. So even if you've got old money, you've got foreign companies that are coming in and they've got a lot of money as well, right? I mean, in fact, this was interesting. Flipkart and Ola are now lobbying the Indian government, for example, for shutting off access to foreign companies. So what they're saying is, we want your capital, but we don't need your companies. They're having trouble competing with those companies. I think Hike basically falls into that group as well. I mean, they don't have foreign money. They have their own money, but they're basically having trouble competing with foreign companies because they have a lot more scale. But actually, this is pretty normal because that's the advantage of all the East Asian companies. They basically ring fence themselves off from the foreign companies. That's why the US companies couldn't dominate in any of the East Asia countries, whether we are talking about China, I mean, Japan and Korea is pretty much the same situation as well. A lot of that is also cultural barriers, right? For Japan, China, to some extent, Southeast Asia, the experience needs to be heavily, heavily customized. Right? It's hard to scale something that was global and into those specific countries. I'll say Southeast Asia to a lesser extent because WhatsApp has been taken off. Now, India doesn't really follow the same pattern. There are some cultural considerations, but at least from the way user experiences and interfaces are designed, it's actually very, very similar to the West. So foreign companies have had no trouble breaking into it. Now we will talk about the US elections. So unfortunately, or fortunately, Donald Trump won. But I thought what was interesting as a bonus event is SoftBank and Foxconn's response to Donald Trump. I mean, Masayoshi San immediately say he's going to put US $50 billion into the US economy with his investment fund, basically just buying T-Mobile and Sprint and Mersham and form the next largest telco and Foxconn saying that they bring manufacturing jobs to US. So I thought that was an interesting bonus event to state that how much Asian companies are, are worried about what's happening to the US market. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I have no words to describe that result of that election. But yeah, I think Asian companies are very concerned about the rhetoric that was mentioned on the campaign. A lot of it was targeted to China. So you would expect now that he is in office and he's going to be there for a while. I mean, you would expect some sort of response from these companies. Also, I think part of it is knowing Donald Trump from the campaign trail and from his celebrity, the one way to get in his good books is to make him look good, right? Give him some easy wins. So if Foxconn moves some token amount of manufacturing to the U.S., SoftBank says they're investing in the US even if they already had plans to invest but they are come and announce it publicly after a meeting with Trump. That's going to get them in the in his good books, right? So I think the, the optics were a large part of what this actually was. Which makes me wonder, here's a hack that actually the Chinese can do in diplomacy. Just allow Donald Trump's kids to build a Trump Tower in China. And then obviously they would change his response to China as well. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Because that's even much more effective than basically going to war on the South China Sea, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Okay. But there is also another bonus event that we want to talk about, which is probably the last one, which is the smartwatch wearable expectations is going to implode. Can you talk about that? Well, this was very interesting this year, right? So if you listen to the commentary from hardware analysts, and if you've been following it for a while, expectations that were quoted in, let's say, January 2016 to December 2016, 
dramatic difference. It's amazing how the goalposts have been shifted. So first, smartwatches were meant to be this entirely new computing platform that's going to be, if not as big as mobile, in the same ballpark. It's going to be the next big growth phase, etc., etc. And slowly, slowly, the goalposts started being shifted to actually, you know what, this is not that big. There was also a lot of commentary about don't listen to early adopters. These devices are actually being used by the mainstream market. That tells you that adoption is going to skyrocket because of word of mouth, etc., etc. Then slowly, the goalposts started shifting as, as sales started going down. It's still very early. The value proposition hasn't been fleshed out yet. It's going to target the fitness market, etc., etc. And it just kept going on from there. Right? So it's amazing. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this next year where the expectations keep going down lower and lower and at some point they're going to come out and say oh actually we expected this all along yeah which also means that the Asian OEMs are going to have issues because they also place a lot of investment into these smartwatch and wearable they're definitely going to, going to be issues we've already seen I mean the smaller companies have started, started shutting out already right Pebble's been sold because they couldn't raise, raise any amount of funding Motorola's basically said they're not going to announce a new smartwatch uh, Lenovo I don't think has announced a smartwatch in a, in a long time at this point Apple and Fitbit are the only two companies left Fitbit is more fitness wearables they've got like the one one of their smartwatches but it's not really an app platform they announced a massive cut to their q4 guidance obviously apple watch sales have taken a massive hit and of course there was this controversy between what idc said and what tim cook said it was a manufactured controversy because what idc said was about 1.1 million shipments in q3 tim cook came out and said we had the best sell through ever one holiday week during q4 those two aren't contradictory in any way you forgot to mention Samsung, actually, who is also still in the watch business as well. <laughs> well, Because I, I want to try to close the conversation is that I forgot one bonus event is the Samsung Note 7 controversy. Never in my life when I sit in any aeroplane, I hear it at least four times about surrendering your Samsung Note 7. That is true. There's signs everywhere. I mean, that was just, I have never seen a company shoot themselves in a the foot the way Samsung has. I read the background about it saying that Samsung wanted to get this out to market quickly because the iPhone 7 was exactly like the iPhone 6s. Look, getting it out more quickly wouldn't have done that much more for you. I mean, the Note 7 sells usually about in the vicinity of 5 to 7 million units a quarter if I've got my numbers right. It's not a huge number. Even if the iPhone 7 had completely imploded, they would have gained, what, 2-3 million in sales? At best. I don't understand what the rush was. I mean, and... In doing so, they've completely destroyed the brand. Their sales are going to recover. It's not that they aren't going to recover. But they're already facing disruption from Chinese low-end OEM. They're already facing a host of other issues. This is just adding on to it. It was something that was completely unnecessary. And it's happened. And now there's not much they can do now. And there are also implications of activist shareholders that's actually hovering around Samsung. They're forcing them to spin off into two separate companies. And now Samsung is even contemplating in basically spin off the semiconductor piece of their business because apparently Apple is going to move with TSMC. So there's a lot of implications of this Samsung Note 7 to the business itself. Well, honestly, activist investors are always looking for an opportunity. So this was just one thing. If, they, if it wasn't this, they would have latched on to something else. It does make sense, I think, for them to spin off the semiconductor unit at some... I mean, I think their smartphone sales are going to take a hit over time. That low-end disruption is going to take hold, which means the semiconductor unit is the one that's important for them to drive at least some sort of revenue growth. And I think that does definitely need to be separated from their consumer electronics unit. That's important for them to do regardless of phones exploding, activist investors. It's good that it's happened. Now they just need to act on it. Okay. So before we're going to proceed and do the second recording, how do my audience find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Samir underscore Singh 17 or LinkedIn or you can check out the Apani blog I occasionally write right there as well. And of course, my own blog at tech-thoughts.net which unfortunately is not being updated as much these days but I will try updating that a little bit as well.
Definitely. And you can find me at bleongcw.bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us, Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and tune in and of course google play only in the u.s market and now we actually working with zencaster you can actually use if you want to create your own podcast i'm actually a user of zencaster i've been using the product before they went from beta to a full product and now if you want to basically subscribe and make your own podcast you can use our promo code analyze asia 20 so samir once again thank you for coming on the show glad to be here